Well, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS, and this is episode 193. As usual, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. Welcome, Kai. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to look back on the predictions from earlier in the year. It's been a, a fascinating year for crypto. We got a lot to discuss. Absolutely. As we just passed the halfway mark for the year, we wanted to take a peek at some of the things we predicted, uh, whether they would happen this year, and see what did we predict correctly? What did we get completely wrong? What still has potential to materialize in the next few months leading up to 2024? So let's dive right in. So before we do it, just as a reminder to listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So go do your own research. Let's kick this off. So to start, we will take a look at the predictions from this year, January. Prediction number one was, how do you think regulators will deal with centralized crypto players? What are the key areas regulators will focus on? Big, big predictions. So <laughs> you said, I would expect to see increasing scrutiny on centralized exchanges, not just from regulators, but consumers. This is what we started to see over the past months. A lot of new tools being built to follow and track exchange addresses. Everyone used to just trust exchanges. Now we're seeing real activity when it comes to the following, everything that's happening on chain. So how did we fare on that, Kai? So it's interesting. I think if we go back to, what was it, January, uh, when, when we made the, these predictions, you know, FTX was still, you know, the, the collapse of FTX was still very recent. You know, that happened in, in November. And so it takes a while you know, for you know, a lot of the, the, the impact you know, from a, a large-scale event like that you know, to happen, it takes a while for cases to be built and the, the overall tone and strategy from, from regulators to shift. Uh, and it seems very clear that centralized exchanges, you know, have you know, been a focus point for regulators in, in, in the United States, particularly the SEC. And it there have been a number of actions that, that have happened, uh, but I don't think, you know, the challenges that centralized exchanges have, have had are, are really just, you know, from a regulatory perspective. I think that more consumers that come into the space are going to be looking at you know many new applications of things that they can do, and so on one hand, yes, there are you know questions about you know what are our securities and commodities, and you know, it makes sense that exchanges are are really just you know in in the forefront of of where the SEC is is focusing, but I think there's just going to be more and more wallets, and that's been one of the most interesting things that I've seen this year is. The, the number of new self-custodial wallets launching, the number of innovations around self-custodial wallets, where it's not that consumers, the only choice they have you know, is interacting you know, with an exchange. Uh, and so I think that the, the market landscape of how consumers are, are going to come in this space could change you know, quite a bit you know, going forward over the next 12 months. And you know, I think it's been a challenge and many of the exchanges are you know, going to court and, and fighting the SEC. Uh, we'll see you know where that that lands but there'll be many options for consumers outside of just a handful of large centralized exchanges like we saw uh last cycle but what do you think yeah i i feel that this i feel the same is that decentralization doesn't matter until it does it's kind of that vibe right now and and you brought a point very interesting um we saw recently the launch of new features on the floors nft app and we saw the beam wallet being announced last week 
these are all Web3 self-custodial wallets, but they have niche use cases that are very peculiar and very similar to Web2 use cases. So I feel that this kind of consumer concern about being you know, dependent on a centralized exchange to on-ramp in a crypto, as crypto evolves, especially with the introduction of standards such as the account abstraction standards on Ethereum, UX becomes more compelling and you as a user stop being so dependent on decentralized actors, which is one angle to this discussion. I think the other angle to this discussion is that regulators around the world are also progressing more towards more legislators currently than regulators. So a few cases we saw in the first half of the year is Japan, the government issued a Web3 white paper to promote Web3 in the country, which is a very different stance from 2022, where they even banned stable coins. In the UK specifically, I'm based in the UK, we saw two major legislations come in. One was the ETDB, the Electronic Trade Documents Bill, that will enable the use of blockchains to record documentation on trade finance. And because trade finance, this one becomes English common law, English common law is used in 80% of the trade finance contracts in the world, give or take. So it is a significant progress in fostering adoption. And we have the Financial Services and Markets Bill that caught incorporated uh, digital assets and crypto as a financial services asset class as part of the legislation, which is important. We saw MICA late last year, early this year, and a new uh, registration regimen in Hong Kong for VASPs or centralized crypto providers. So it's not just that we're seeing more regulation come out, we're seeing better regulation come out. And this plays a big part on how this industry evolves, whether you're a centralized player or not. So it feels that although there is a lot of uh, contention and and, uh, belligerence in some jurisdictions, the rest of the world is kind of trying to figure out how to best welcome this new market. It's not that being friendly is probably not the best word to kind of describe this. It's more being welcome to what is new and, and embracing this in ways that everyone can actually benefit. What what do you think this indicates going forward? I think we also have to acknowledge just how much progress has happened on the legislative side uh, in the United States, uh, where, you know, if I remember correctly, in, in January, like, you know, there were not, you know, crypto related bills, market structure bills, stablecoin bills that were being taken seriously. It was still kind of the fallout of, whoa, this major event happened you know, how do we clean this up? How do we protect consumers? Uh, but there's not interest in, you know, let's let's make some new rules. The interest seemed to be more about, you know, enforcement. Uh, and there was this kind of, you know, pretty big backlash, you know, against the industry. Uh, but over time, it's it it seems like there's just been a, a bunch of progress on, on both sides of the aisle saying, you know, there clearly need to be some new rules. The question is, you know, who should make the rules? You know, there's seems like there's one argument that says, oh, the SEC has everything they need, and it's really just about enforcing them. Uh, but there's an increasing number of people saying, no, like, you know, the courts <laughs> have a role to play, but you know, everything that happens at the courts then kind of reinforces that maybe there need to be some rules that are, are created at the um, it, in Congress. And so 
seeing the success that McHenry has had, even on a limited sense, kind of getting this you know, initial market structure bill, you know, voted you know, out of the, the committee, uh, it seems like there is momentum in that direction, uh, which is is a balance to a lot of the, the regulation by enforcement uh, that's happening. But as you mentioned, this is such a global industry. And, you know, it seems like, you know, the U.S. has been lagging behind uh, in terms of, you know, creating some of these clear rules that other jurisdictions, you know, have. And it's going to be really interesting to see if, if the U.S. is is able to, to catch up and if that happens you know, through courts, if that happens through through legislating. Yeah, my 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 point on um, the whole regulation by enforcement, which is the term that crypto as an industry has, has been using for some of what ha what's happening in in the U.S., is that it kind of provides specific resolutions against or in favor of a particular case. But when that happens, it because it's on the court, it's not gone through a whole legislative process where the cross impact with other rules and regulations are analyzed and then framed so they don't become contrary to what exists. So I'll give you an example. The courts that ruled the XRP was uh, not a security on the secondary market. Everybody got excited that XRP, which is Ripple's cryptocurrency, was ruled out not as a security. Even, you know, there was price action related to that, which was, uh, you know, obviously to be expected. But the way the court ruled kind of almost promoted a way that or, or indicated that it would be preferred that the parties are unknown. And we know that financial services has a clear regulation on your customer. So how do those things kind of merge when a ruling kind of incentivizes something that other legislation is obviously against. So this is one of the things that I feel and, and the efforts that you just described in Congress are important is that clarity doesn't come from litigation. Clarity comes from working to understand the new framework, the new paradigm. And I feel that if we see bipartisan support, especially in the US, the super influential around the world, we're gonna see better progress. And as I said, it's not just friendly regulation. I don't think the industry expects friendliness I think we expect welcoming and clear frameworks that we can actually build with because it's all about solving wider problems, especially in financial services, right? So I feel that it's kind of where we're seeing legislation and regulation play a part. But it's interesting also that uh, although there is this kind of litigation in place, there's also space for innovators and regulators to collaborate, right? So. Uh, an example that we saw late last year and continues to be true this year is Singapore has a massive program with the banks doing a lot of uh, progress in DeFi. Uh, we're going to touch upon that in a minute. And also in Brazil, like Brazil has a whole, like there's a list of projects, uh, especially in the context of uh, the Digital Real, which is Brazil's wholesale CBDC, welcoming the industry to actually understand, given the existing regulations, what is it that you can build and what do you need from future regulation that will enable you to build better and more? So I think that is also refreshing and reassuring to see that there is space uh, for collaboration in the industry. Is there any, any other place you're seeing collaboration between, say, legislators or regulators and the industry that you would like to kind of point out? It's one of the reasons why working in crypto is fascinating. Like, you have people trying to build a product that are you know, now trying to interpret 
you know, court rulings and kind of what's the judicial process. And now I'm trying to learn about the legislative process. Okay, pass the committee. Now we, there are so many different elements that in many ways it's, it's, it's really interesting and it's forcing more people to get interested in, you know, how does the judicial system work? But on the other hand, it's just very hard to build products. So, you know, most industries, you know, a product manager is not actively reading case law. <laughs> like it's, it's just like, that's <laughs> no. what lawyers do. And, 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 you know, huge gratitude for all the, the crypto lawyers out there. Uh, but we're in this really interesting transitionary period in the space where there's just so many unknowns around how it will evolve. And there's so many different stakeholders that have different interests you know, whether it's, you know, the courts, whether it's legislators, and then even within legislators, you know, it's not even just, you know, bipartisan, uh, or it's not even just based upon, you know, Democrat or Republican, it's, you know, generational. It's, you, you look at the the age of, of, of many of the elected representatives and their views, you know, on the space. And so, you know, there are all these different, you know, moving pieces, but I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is there's a recognition that this isn't going away. Uh, and that it's important enough that it's worth you know spending time on, and the fact that you have you know two you know presidential candidates uh, at least two you know I said even if they are the the long shots that are actively you know talking about the crypto industry you know as a part of their campaign, it feels like it's it's kind of a a when not if we get you know to a point where there's some clarity on what the rules are, and it's really hard to predict you know. What exactly will those rules be, and where will the compromises, you know, be made between you know the industry and and between elected representatives and and, and all these stakeholders? But it's not all go, going away, and I think this is this is very different than you know even last cycle when I when I look back to you know what were people thinking about in 2018 and 2019, and you know there were people thinking, okay, maybe the only thing that is going to exist is Bitcoin. You know, maybe Ethereum, you know, isn't going to exist. Maybe, maybe there's really nothing else that you'll do with this technology other than, you know, digital gold. Uh, and I think now, you know, there is this this broader recognition that there are going to be many applications, you know, for, you know, smart contract platforms and public blockchains that they're not just going to be Bitcoin, uh, but it's going to take years, you know, for, you know, the clarity in, in these rules to, to, to pan out. Uh, but what I'm excited about is people, People aren't waiting for it in order to build products. It will influence where they build products. It'll influence where they launch products. Uh, but there aren't innovators and builders that are are going home. And they're saying, wait, wake me up in three years or four years <laughs> when there are some rules. And it's going to be fascinating to see how how it plays out. Which brings me kind of to, to a point which is also very refreshing is that we're seeing obviously major other major jurisdictions that are relevant in the global stage to get organized like Europe and, and the UK and even the BRICS. But we're also seeing the global South rally a lot around crypto. And, and it's remarkable how with very little, they can build a lot, like especially payments and remittances in the global South, which is a big chunk of uh, some of these local economies are increasingly more reliant on the use of stable coins and crypto payment rails to kind of get the job done because it's easier to use, it's cheaper, they can be protected uh, from the local inflation or the local currency devaluation. And, and this helps uh, to kind of bring them a little bit more of 
I wouldn't say financial independence, but maybe financial inclusion might be the case here. And and this is also one of those you know overarching sentiments in crypto that we say that the widespread adoption is going to come from the global south, and and we're we're seeing that happen in real time and and on chain, which is which is always refreshing. So if if we have more welcoming again welcoming regulatory frameworks, it's it's likely that we're going to see that even more widespread, uh, even if it's just a single use case. I I, I love the the Beam wallet pitching the Vemo of Web3 kind of vibe, like Vemo is a winner on UX by itself. And if Beam can replicate that success in Web3 anywhere in the world, because it's, again, borderless, we're going to see a lot of uh, non-Web3 natives coming in because it's just so easy to use. And, and, and UX is really where it's at. So hopefully that also uh, puts a little bit of less of a pressure in, in in legislators and regulators and more of a pressure in in building the right thing, building well and building great UX so we can actually do that onboarding of the next billion users, as we love to say. What do you think? This is one of the the biggest trends that that I've seen so far this year. And it's just the the pace of development of wallets. There are, you know, I, I come across a handful of new wallets I've never seen or heard before launching pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I've got like 50 downloaded on my phone now that I'm playing around with and, and trying out. <laughs> and this this vision, this this concept of a, a global Venmo, you know, has been around and has been talked about in the crypto industry for a while. But I think the infrastructure wasn't really there to support it until recently. And I think there are there are a few pieces that are required. And, and the first is just the scalability of, of blockchains. Like if, if you wanted to build a global Venmo in 2019, you know, good luck. Like they're just, you know, you're building on ETH, you know, layer one, um, you know, the gas fees are, are, are going to be, you know, cost prohibitive. There weren't that many other options. And so I think now what we're seeing is there are dozen plus options. If you want to build a global Venmo on either layer twos on top of Ethereum, and then you got you know, a whole ecosystem. Okay, well, which which layer two, and what are you optimizing for? And I think uh, you know the Beam wallet is one of the the layer twos, uh, and then you have the alternative layer ones. You've got Solana, you've got Aptos, you've got Sui, you've got it. So it's it went from almost for builders there were really no choices and no options if you wanted to create a a wallet that could do you know instant you know fast cheap you know cross border payments. To now, it's almost like there are too many options, <laughs> and like that's part of the challenge is that you have people, you have new wallets that are popping up on all of these different layer twos or all of these different alternative layer ones, and they don't really talk to each other yet. And so it's almost like we need some consolidation down to what are the chains that are going to be used, you know, for you know cross border you know payments. Uh, so I think that's one you know major major advancement is just blockchains can scale enough. That they're fast and cheap, where you can build some of these products, and the other is on ramps and and off ramps. You know, continue to to improve, and so you know, there's still a a long way to go. But you know, being able to in particularly in emerging markets, use picks, you know, as an on ramp and off ramp, you know, into a wallet or an exchange using UPI in in India, using local wallets. Uh, I think we were seeing you know uh, companies like MFS Africa and and the ability to use mobile money as as on ramps and and off ramps, and so. I think that when you have blockchain scaling, 
and you have on and off ramps maturing, those are really the two key ingredients. And then you just need to have, you know, builders and designers that, you know, can create, you know, intuitive products that consumers can easily use. Uh, and we have to figure out, okay, which of the, the blockchains, it doesn't make sense to have global Venmos on, you know, dozens of different blockchains. Um, but we're finally at the point where the infrastructure works. It works well enough to build products that people have talked about for years. And I think that's one of the really exciting you know, moments for the, the space right now. Maybe that's why Mr. Elon Musk now decided to finally pivot the Bluebird app to an X super app that will probably, in his own words, be the future of finance. So now the infrastructure is there. He is a crypto bro, for sure. We can only speculate. Who, who knows? Where these things are who going. knows? What, I, I I will not attempt to to predict anything that, that Elon Musk would do. And we're or, probably going to be surprised anyway. So that's that's great. So uh, let's take a quick pause here, hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities and Visa's helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11 a.m. so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. So welcome back. Continuing our predictions, the next one was, will DeFi sandboxes become a thing for progressive regulators? We kind of leaned a lot on Project Guardian when we discussed about this. Project Guardian, if you guys don't recall, is a project sponsored by the Monetary Authority of Singapore with uh, participating banks and crypto companies, banks like JP Morgan and DBS, crypto companies like uh, Aave and uh, Fireblocks and Polygon. So this is uh, operating in the space that DGNs hate, which is regulated DeFi. So that was an example. They recently announced that they're expanding the program. They're including more banks. They're including more crypto companies. And they are expanding in terms of um, the, the types of use cases and the types of, and I'm going to say here, quote unquote, money equivalents between tokenized deposits, CBDCs, and cryptocurrencies themselves to kind of try and, and capture all of that space. And that is just one of the examples. So that is probably the major one and it hasn't seemed it, it doesn't seem to me that we we have achieved kind of escape velocity between progressive regulators and the crypto space although Italy uh, the Italian Central Bank announced 
that they're partnering also with Polygon and other players to actually explore more of DeFi in the context of TradFi. So it feels that we kind of indicated that, but it's not as big as uh, the other predictions or it hasn't picked up to the extent of these other predictions. My, my take on this is that we have the rest of the year to become further and further away from uh, FTX and, and, and SVB so that regulators can now pay attention to some of these innovations and actually bring them uh, into the fold and start do, uh, doing that. So it's not exactly that we nail this, but I think it's, a, it's, it's still a good indicator for the next uh, few months until we wrap up the year. Uh, what is your perception on this guy? Definitely a trend that takes a, a lot more time to, to play out. I think first, maybe it's interesting to just start with where has the narrative gone around CBDC? And you know, we've heard about CBDC. We've talked about CBDC on the show for you know, many years now. And I think you know the first real phase of, of CBDC, which I'd say is almost like you know, 2019 to 20, you know, 21, you know, maybe 2022. Uh, and it was really started with you know, concern about you know, Libra, and it was kind of this reaction, and it was saying, "Wait a minute! Like, shouldn't you know if if they're going to be these digital currencies, it could be created by you know tech platforms. Like, shouldn't the central bank you know shouldn't that be the central bank's job?" Uh, and so there was a lot of interest in in retail CBDC, a lot of papers, a lot of studies, a lot of experiments. You know, we saw some markets, you know, like China that 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 launched theirs, you know, and and continue to to pilot it. You know, still. TBD, what the the actual adoption and and how much consumers actually want it. Uh, we saw other markets like Nigeria experiment with it, did not really have much success. And I think over time, kind of the further central banks have gotten, they've really recognized it's it's just really really hard to build direct to consumer products and and to create this brand new ecosystem and who's asking for it and if consumers you know don't really want it, you know you got to compete with existing products that work really well. And so now I think we've seen a lot more interest from central banks in wholesale CBDC uh, rather than retail. But instead of just wholesale CBDC on its own, it's been really looking at, you know, what could this future financial infrastructure look like if you combine a wholesale CBDC with this new term of, you know, tokenized deposits? And so is there a role for banks to play representing commercial bank liabilities, you know, on chain that can then be settled when they're transferred via a wholesale CBDC. And it's a, a pretty complex you know, ecosystem and there are a bunch of different designs and there's the regulated liability network and uh, there are a bunch of pilots and experiments you know, happening. We've been involved in, in some in Hong Kong and in Brazil. And so I think that's been the biggest focus is to say, okay, how do central banks and banks and payment providers, technology companies work together in this new tokenized asset ecosystem? And then what are the motivations and, and what are the use cases? And I think people have, particularly in, in markets like Brazil, you know, PIX works really well. They've had a lot of success with their you know, retail, you know, real-time you know, payment network. And so I think it's, it's become less central banks trying to reinvent retail payments and recognizing there's there's less of demand in, in many markets for consumers and they kind of what they have works pretty well. And more thinking about what are these futuristic use cases of tokenized assets, of you know, programmable finance and DeFi and 
you know, what could you do if stocks and bonds and, you know, cash all existed on the same ledger and you had these permission liquidity pools. And so it is this really interesting time, which I think is is a, a better focus in at least thinking kind of far out in the future of, of what new things could we uniquely do if we leveraged, we have this new infrastructure in a controlled, regulated way between central banks and banks, rather than how do we enable someone to pay for their coffee, which we always kind of said of like, the the motivation of creating a brand new, complex central bank retail payments for someone to pay for their coffee just doesn't, there's not really a high ROI on that. So I think it's it's in a much you know better place in terms of focusing on, you know, tokenized assets, capital market innovation, you know, atomic, you know, delivery versus payment. But on the other hand, this stuff is incredibly complex. Uh, and this is not just, okay, how do you send value from point A to point B? It's how are assets issued on top of you know, these new networks? And then what protocols are these assets? It, that takes a lot longer you know, to play out, but I think it's, it's a better focus. And so I expect we'll continue to see more and more experiments you know, from the forward-thinking central banks like Singapore and Hong Kong and Brazil, you know, and others, but it will be more about capital markets innovation than it will be about retail or even B2B payment innovation. Uh, and I think that's where programmable finance and DeFi protocols, and, and there'll be a lot of kind of crossover between there, but that's not something that that you solve and, and kind of deploy commercially, you know, in 12 months. But I think it is, there will be seeds planted that become really interesting new financial market infrastructure you know, over the next five years you know, that come out of some of the pilots that happen in the next 12, 24 months. No, absolutely. And, and interesting you mentioned this because one of the things that I feel CBDC, especially wholesale CBDCs, I, 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 I brought this up before. I'm not a big fan of retail CBDCs for various reasons. But I'm a big fan of wholesale CBDCs because even the relationship between central banks and the commercial banks, and even between commercial banks, they are complex. They are heavy lifting. There's a lot of data coming back and forth. There's very little space for automation in the way that they operate today. But having the ability to program how these things happen at the protocol level is something they've never had. And this by itself is a major opportunity. And it also speaks to the whole phenomenon of tokenization. If, if anything kind of jumped in front of financial services this year was tokenization of what they call real world assets, which, which in the real world is just called assets. <laughs> it's just having the ability to capture the corresponding asset and the corresponding behavior of that asset on chain and have it programmed. And every time it has a particular business event in that asset's life cycle, be able to actually trigger that on chain and do whatever corresponding action very transparently with awareness of the parties involved. And if it involves a, a, a lag of liquidity, leverage the use of a wholesale CBDC, that's operating in that same space. Because tokenization without the corresponding liquidity is just a notary. And, and blockchains don't need to be just a notary. They have a programmable layer that if you ignore, you're just underutilizing the infrastructure, which is obviously not built to build for, not, not, not cheap to build for. So 
I really feel that in especially again, especially in the wholesale space, the the, the large financial operations, I feel that there is a lot of space for the real world asset tokenization to become just simply how banks do things between themselves and between themselves and the central banks, because there is a lot of opportunity there in terms of efficiencies that they haven't been able to tap uh, just yet. And I feel that that's what kind of CBDCs will end up triggering. And the counterpart of that is that also gives a lot of transparency to the counterpart emission of what you said, uh, tokenized deposits, which is uh, what Project Guardian and other projects uh, around the world are, are trying to determine, which was not something we heard of last year. It was very little, no articles, no nothing, and then Project Guardian came, and now banks in general are more inclined to say, well, if I have a CBDC, a wholesale CBDC on my back end, can I issue a digital real or whatever the currency is that I can actually go and say, well, if the companies and the individuals want to use that, it's going to look like a stable coin, but it's backed by the CBDC that I have here on my balance sheet. So it creates a better relationship between the circulating supply and the money that they have in store with the central bank. So I, I feel that transparency and programmability are big winners when we talk about tokenization. And that will not happen in, in, in the regulated financial services uh, without the support of, of a wholesale CBDC more specifically. So this is, uh, as you said, it's a play of a decade. It's not a play for next year, but the foundation is being discussed. And as more central banks realize what the model, uh, what model works for them, we're going to see things like we're seeing uh, in Brazil with the Lyft uh, program. And in the UK now, we have the uh, recurring sandbox. So the sandbox was a kind of start and finish kind of program. And now it's open forever. You can apply from, I think it's uh, now in August and onward. Anyone will be able to actually apply for the sandbox and, and get to use it. And, and that is the opportunity to blend open data with open finance and uh, digital assets in ways that we haven't seen before, which to me kind of points to a very promising future of actually being able to bake in all of that innovation under the guise of the regulator, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's, it's interesting to see there's the, the other trend around this has been tokenized real world assets coming onto public blockchains and then into kind of the open crypto ecosystem. Uh, and so, you know, shout out to uh, real world assets, rwa.xyz. It's a really interesting tracker around, you know, the different tokenized treasuries. You know, there's really quietly $600 million of tokenized T-bills uh, that are now on chain across, you know, Stellar, across Ethereum. We've seen Franklin Templeton. We've seen startups like Ondo yep. that have been super active there. And so you have, you know, treasury bills being represented on chain. You know, it's kind of the, the stable coin equivalent of you know, someone's holding a treasury bill, issuing a token that's, that's you know, able to be redeemed for that. And that's, you know, starting to trade and, you know, people are buying and selling them, you know, with stable coins. And so how much of real world assets will come onto public blockchains versus will permissioned networks uh, and tokenized deposits, you know, be you know, the only way that, that some asset issuers or some banks are comfortable? And then what types of assets are really going to drive this? Like people talk about, you know, these new next gen capital markets and tokenized assets and you're like, 
okay, well, where, where do you start? Uh, it's pretty easy to say, oh, if everything existed in the same ledger and all assets were issued here, then you know things would be great. Uh, but how would we actually get there? You know, are treasuries, T-bills going to be the first or, or what types of bonds and you know, what role do the asset issuers play versus banks versus is it institutional versus retail? Uh, I think there's still a bunch of open questions. And, you know, people have been talking about securities tokens and, and crypto since 2017. It feels like there's actually been, you know, more progress in tokenized real world assets in 2023 than any other year that that I can remember. And so I think that's kind of quietly you know, happened in, in the background. Yeah, I think that is a, an interesting segue on our um, third prediction, which is more use cases for NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Some of these are real-world assets that, that have been tokenized. Not every real-world asset is a fungible asset, right? So um, we we had a an interesting take, and I'm going to read from my cheat sheet uh, what you said. For the LinkedIn crowd, NFTs have been surprisingly resilient, and there's a lot more activity in NFTs than most people who aren't actively following probably realize. There is still a lot of activity, just that it's something that is worth watching. We've seen a little bit of a kind of disaster strike crypto native collectibles recently with, say, apes and azukis and punks and others, but we also saw a number of large players, especially in the, like, high-end luxury and, and, and the automotive sector actually tackling NFTs to manage their communities. It, it, it's really becoming that decentralized CRM primitive we keep talking about, uh, Kai. Do you feel that we, in this prediction, we, we were uh, precise? Did, did we nail this one? So it, it depends, it depends how, how, how we measure it. Uh, I still think there's a lot of really interesting things happening. I think you have on one end, these are digital luxury goods. And we've seen that use case, whether it's board apes or, or punks and, and you know, things come in the style, they go out of style. And I think in many ways, NFTs were a beneficiary of, you know, people made money in crypto uh, as market prices went up. And it's a new generation, a, a kind of a new demographic and, a new kind of you know cultural um, you know community of people who are making money in crypto, and they chose to spend that money. They'd rather spend it on you know some high-priced JPEGs than they would on a Rolex or a car. And so I think that that's you know pretty straightforward to think about. Yeah, you know, I don't. It's not going to be the last time that we see that. That you know as you know crypto continues to to rise and fall you know, through different cycles, that new millennial affluent millennial and Gen Z consumers have a propensity and an interest in spending money on high-priced digital luxury goods. Uh, and now the question is, you know, some of those are crypto-native you know, projects that are you know, from the ground up. Some of those are traditional luxury goods you know, providers that are coming on chain. Uh, and so looking at you know, what Tiffany's did you know, with their CryptoPunk collaboration, uh, Louis Vuitton just did a, a, an on-chain you know, trunk you know, NFT that you know, by owning this and the NFT, you get access to exclusive you know, products. Uh, we've seen Nike and the swoosh platform you know, continue to, to, to get a you know, good amount of adoption and, and then do some interesting collaborations where you can take you know, the swoosh NFTs and then use them you know, inside of games. Uh, and so I think that we're going to have you know, this you know, digital luxury you know, component. And then the other piece that really has been most interesting to me has been the return to art. There is a lot of interest in particularly generative art 
as a new kind of modern art form. And so to see you know, the success of, of art blocks, you know, I think it's it's Sotheby's now who has their own you know, generative art you know, platform. There are new gen art platforms like Prohibition you know, launching on layer twos, you know, like Arbitrum. And it's kind of refreshing in a way because you know, there is a genuine interest in these new form factors of you know, how can you write code where the code itself you know, is art and it creates these really interesting visual outputs that can tell stories and, and can have real impact. And, and I've been dabbling and in, in playing around with some of these and like there is a, a real community of people who are excited about art and blockchains are enabling this new form of art rather than the reverse where I think PFPs and, and, and some of the, the earlier you know, projects you know, that took off in the bull market it's hard to it's a lot harder to consider board apes art than it is you know to look at a, a, a this really interesting generative art piece uh, that has you know, a lot of different components to it that tells the story uh, related to someone's you know experiences uh, and so I think generative art is is something that's going to come out of this this uh, this bear market as a you know art form that is going to be increasingly acknowledged by traditional art collectors by traditional museums and that is uniquely enabled by blockchains. Uh, and that will be a, a big category you know, of NFTs. And then you have the CRM, you know, instead of buying an NFT for a million dollars, can you mint a million NFTs you know, to all of your customers just as you know, a way that they can interact with you and be able to do that for a dollar? And that wasn't really possible when blockchains were too expensive. You can't do that on Ethereum. You can't really use you know, Ethereum NFTs as a CRM because it's just, the gas fee to, to mint is cost prohibitive. I think seeing some of the experiments happening on Polygon, on Layer 2s, on Solana, there are going to be many mass market NFTs that are more about loyalty and engagement than they are about any secondary market that that NFT might have. And so I see it almost as like, there's gonna be a bunch of activity at the high end, digital luxury goods and fine generative art. And then there's gonna be a bunch of, you know, how do you use these things as loyalty programs and CRMs? Uh, that's going to be at the low end. And I think there'll be innovation on on both those sides. And even if the trading volume is down, I have more conviction that this technology will be increasingly useful in a number of different areas over the next few years. Yeah, it's interesting you say this because recently in one uh, tech event in Brazil, a project uh, called Gotas Social, which is social drops, they are minting millions of NFTs at a very low cost. And they had like, I don't know, I think it's like 50,000 people in the audience being able to scan a QR code and mint uh, Gota's NFT on their wallet immediately. Like it's, it's a massive movement. And exactly because now we have this kind of affordability of an infrastructure that you can actually do that at scale. In the same vein, we're seeing Starbucks continues with the uh, Odyssey uh, program. There are more uh, crypto native companies coming into the loyalty space, trying to recreate a better uh, user experience for loyalty holders, even trading across different uh, loyalty programs, the points, um, because points are kind of tokens the same way. And we're seeing uh, um, Reddit still uh, using the avatars. So it's, it's not just I mean, it is it is a primitive in the sense that you can build from it multiple use cases, and the way it behaves 
is the way that you program it to behave, right? And it's 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 that's the edge where we want to see this play in the digital space. And which which kind of brings me to another innovation in the space, which is the nestable NFTs. That was a, a new Ethereum uh, standard that was launched recently. Is that an NFT can own NFTs from other uh, smart contracts, which means that now you can create different experiences by combining different NFTs from different sources or different issuers in ways that right now might seem a little bit too complicated, but the amount of unlocking in terms of collaborating experiences you can have in the digital space now is unlike anything you could have before that without a lot of heavy lifting. So this new standard kind of allows an NFT that you have to own another NFT or other NFTs from other issuers. And that is something that um, only open source in crypto <laughs> is able to achieve. So uh, another one that's pretty refreshing and very promising coming forward. Yeah, it's it's a new design space for consumer applications. Uh, and I think that's going to lead to a bunch of creativity and, and innovation. And the other important trend that, that I think will help accelerate it is the concept of wallet as a service. You know, NFTs need wallets. You know, they, they have to sit in, in a wallet somewhere. And if, you know, to start an NFT experience, when someone shows up, if you have to say, oh, go download a wallet, then they have to leave your app. They have to go, you know, interact with another brand that you don't control, that, you know, you're, you, they're not accustomed to the onboarding and then their seed words. And then by the time they come back, they're like, oh, who, who cares? And particularly for some of those use cases where you just want someone to claim a free NFT, going and downloading and setting up MetaMask for the first time just to claim a free NFT probably doesn't really make sense. Uh, but now, you know, seeing you've got you know, a number of different wallet as a service you know, providers from you know, Web3 Auth and Magic Link and Sequence and Coinbase has one now and Circle has one. I think you'll see merchants and developers you know, start to integrate wallets into the existing experiences. And so you could just you know, one click claim an NFT. And by doing that, you know, you're spinning up a self-custodial wallet you know, tied to your email uh, that you can now use. I think the question will be, how do those work across different applications? I think that there are ways to do it today that can be a really good experience inside one application. Uh, but then it gets kind of siloed where you know, I don't want to have to have you know, five different wallets each tied to one you know, individual application. I think NFTs get really powerful when they become these you know, digital backpacks that you bring all your belongings with you, you know, everywhere you go across the internet. Uh, and I think that there's a role, particularly in, in ad tech, you know, as them becoming this this modern cookie, uh, where you can you know have consumers opt in, you know, to claim something or to collect something that says uh, says something about themselves, uh, and then you know choose to share that you know with merchants uh, across the internet. And I think that that's really really powerful in an age where you know everyone I talk to in in the the advertising and marketing space is like it's getting harder and harder you know, to be able to acquire customers and customer acquisition costs are going up and you have less data than you've had before with some of the Apple, you know, changes to, to app tracking. And so I, I think that's a whole nother space that, you know, doesn't get talked about as much, but, you know, how could NFTs become kind of better cookies that consumers can opt into uh, that can then, you know, transform some of the, the e-commerce landscape? Absolutely. Oh my God, way too many things. So many things, so little time. So that, that kind of brings up uh, us up to uh, the end of our uh, session today. Uh, thanks, Kai, for joining us today. Where can people find more about you? 
Still saying on Twitter at Kai Sheffield. Everyone knows what I mean. <laughs> I can't get used to sayx.com uh, and uh, slash crypto. You can also find me on the Bird app. <laughs> it's not a bird anymore. Uh, on the Bird app at 0x Mauricio, on LinkedIn at Mauricio Magaldi and 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works and we're so excited to be talking about crypto and blockchain with you again. If you can wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes on our back catalog and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare. Stay weird. LFG.